All right. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Pretty good? Good. Thanks for making it a point to be here this morning with your church family. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Rick Myers. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Community. And it's my joy to be with you as we continue our journey through Genesis. And today we find ourselves in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Now, some of you are very familiar with this story. It's an origin story, right? Of why we have so many languages in this world, you know, instead of one universal language. And as I was preparing for this message today, I was thinking about all the awkward language situations I've gotten into my life, the barriers. Um, it got me thinking back to China when Janine and I were uh, there in 2015 adopting Haonan. I remember how hard it was to communicate. You know, we tried to learn a little bit of the language. I don't know if ever you've ever tried Duolingo and Rosetta Stone, so we tried that before we left. But really, I walked away knowing two words, Shay Shay, which is thank you, and now now meaning bathroom. And so the, those words will help get you, you know, not far enough, let me just say that. So we get there and we were blessed to have a guide and a translator. Look at me, I was so young and full of energy. Um, and we were, so we had a translator and we were also adopting with another family that we were teamed with. They were adopting from the same orphanage. And we were given like the best translator in the world, the best guide. Her name was Emma. And she kind of navigated our life through China for two weeks. Um, but we made a mistake. At the end of our trip, so there was a down day. There wasn't much going on. So Emma had worked tirelessly for us. So we were like, let's give Emma the day off. So we send Emma home. She goes home. We decided that we're just going to walk down the street to a KFC. Yep, they have these two-story KFCs in China. And that's where this picture was taken at. Um, so we decided just to have dinner, go back to the hotel, quiet evening. Shouldn't be nothing to it. But there's something you should know. At this time, Haonan wasn't really excited to be with us. You know, his world was changing. He was anxious. So this would result that when, when we were out in public, he would have these screaming fits. So we would be dragging him through the streets of China, and Haonan would be screaming. Um, and that happened at the KFC. Even the colonel couldn't make him happy. So we're at the KFC, getting some food. We're in the play area. Things have settled down. Dave, the other dad, and I, we decide that we're going to go down and get some ice cream. So we walk down and get ice cream. It's at that time we turn around and we see a police, like Chinese policemen coming through the front door. Someone directs them upstairs. The Chinese police go upstairs. Dave and I are just kind of like holding our cones like, this can't be good. <laughs> you know, so we then go upstairs. We see our wives are being questioned by the authorities. We can't communicate. We've lost our translator. We don't even have our paperwork. Emma had taken all our paperwork back with her to, she had biked across the city back home. So she had everything. We couldn't communicate. We were scared. There was nothing we could do to bridge the barrier gap. So we get, <laughs> so we're getting questioned. We get detained. We get taken to a local police station where Emma eventually shows up. You know, I call Emma on the phone. I'm like, Emma, I'm sorry. <laughs> and she's like, and she says in her broken English, don't worry, 
I'll pedal really fast back to you. And I was like, yes, pedal like the wind, Emma, because we are in trouble. So eventually Emma shows up, clears, the communication barrier is lifted, and we can communicate, and we're back on the streets of China. But this is one of those situations where you realize that language and the ability to communicate is really important. The confusion in language was so frustrating there was this language barrier where we just did not know what each other was saying. Situations like this makes you ask the question, why can't there just be one universal language? Well, the Tower of Babel addresses that question because you see at one point we did have one universal language, but then something happened which changed the landscape of language in the world forever. So let's read our text today. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and we're going to start with the first four verses. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said, come, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Lord, I need your mercy this morning. Lord, I lift this service up to you. Help me to communicate clearly. Let me communicate words that your people need to hear. I have been so blessed by just burying myself in learning about this story over the last two weeks, Lord, and I want to share it with your people, Lord. So help me in this moment, for we love you and we praise you. Amen. So my big idea today is that we must humble ourselves before God, acknowledging his authority and sovereignty over all human endeavors. So we must humble ourselves before God, acknowledging his authority and sovereignty over all endeavors. Okay, so where are we in the Genesis story? You know, the story of Babel takes place about 100 years after the flood. Human beings have repopulated the earth from that remnant of eight. God has given mankind the commandment in Genesis 9-1 that said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We move on in our Bibles and we read in Genesis 10, the chapter right before the Tower of Babel, and we read that human beings are scattering the earth. Nations are popping up everywhere. People are filling the earth. And you may be tempted to think for a moment that, yay, humanity, we are getting it right this time. We are finally obeying. We are filling and scattering. Filling and scattering, no problem, Lord, we are on it. But we're going to see that, oh, not so much. We're going to see in 11 that it is God's direct intervention that caused the scattering, which leads me to my first point. Humanity seeks independence apart from God and his commandments. So we have this large group of people traveling east from their location, and they decide that they're going to settle and build a city in the land of Shinar. So think modern-day Iraq. And they have a plan, right? They have a plan. They're going to make bricks. They're going to burn them, right? They're going to use brick for stone, 
bid them in for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So at first glance, you may think to yourself, what's wrong with building a city and a tower? Seems like a pretty logical and creative thing to do. These people are pretty industrious, right? They're using the resources they have. They didn't have stones, so they're using bricks to build a city, build a tower. At face value, what, what's wrong with that? But you need to look at the why they wanted to do this. You see that the language in this passage is very, very self-focused. The plans for this city and tower are all about them. Look at the language. Come, let us build for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Mankind wants to build a kingdom for themselves and leave God out of the equation. We have seen this before, right? We've seen it in the garden with Adam and Eve at the fall. We see the evil that was present in humanity when God judged humanity with that great flood. And here we are, just a few generations after the flood, still in Moses' lifetime, and mankind wants to do their own thing once again. Notice the question that they're not asking. They're not asking, what can we do to make a name for God? But rather, what can we do to make a name for ourselves. They're looking to build their own kingdom where they can be secure, significant. They want to build their own thing. That is human pride, a pride that will make us the center of the universe instead of God. You know, long ago, it, that most people in the West would agree like pride was the first of the seven deadly sins was seen as a very dangerous thing because after all, pride was the thing that caused wars, the strife in the world. It's the reason why you and I bicker and quarrel with one another. But here in the USA, as a culture, we are no longer alarmed by pride. We don't hear that siren going off anymore. Actually, pride is promoted as many mental health counselors as evidence for a healthy self-esteem. And many would say that having self-centered pride is the key to having success in your life, in your career. But this story, this Tower of Babel, stands as a warning to you and me about the destructive nature of pride. God is always concerned about the why of our actions. Externals are one thing we can make anything look pretty, but the heart's motivation is another. The writer in Proverbs says, in 423, above all else, guard your heart, for everything that you do flows from it. What you set your heart on is going to dictate how you live your life, your day-to-day -day actions. The big things and the little things come from a heart that is targeted on something. There's something that we want, and all our actions are going to stem from that desire. In this story, the heart motivation is clear. Come, let us build a tower into heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. You see, their own words condemn them here. Let's think about our own life for a second. Why do we do the things that we do? Whose name is it for? Let me be the first to enter the confessional here. 
I know that I can think way, way too much about myself and my so-called great name. You know, even, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> even in writing this sermon, I can get so wrapped up in myself and make it about me rather than God, right? I want to look good, have a good name. I want to feel significant. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have just plowed forward, making decisions, planning my kingdom, not considering God, not praying, just getting things done, brick by brick, building my kingdom. We want to build a great name for ourselves. Not only that, we want to protect that great name. And sometimes that we want to protect that name so much that we find ourselves always playing it safe. We avoid all risk for the sake of protecting our self-perceived great name. Pride can slice two ways. It can cause us to achieve great, great things for the wrong reasons, but it can also, also, out of the fear of failure, the fear of losing our great name, to always play it safe. We avoid anything that will put our name on the line. Now, I'm not talking about like crazy worldly risk here. I'm not telling you to go to the casino and put your life savings on black, you know, or start, quit your job and start a beanie baby, baby business or something like that. But what I'm saying is taking risk for God, right? And we don't do this because we protect our name. We hear people talking about our God, and we don't speak up for God. We don't speak up for truth, for the fear of being canceled. We don't share the gospel. Because what in the world would people think of us? We're just going to be one of those Jesus nuts, right? So whether we're looking to build a great name or to pretend or to protect our so-called great name, we have made it all about us. These people in Shinar were looking to build a great name for themselves. But here's the thing we need to ask what is your ultimate purpose in life? It's to glorify his name. God created us for his glory, not his. God created us not to make a great name for ourselves, but a great name for him. Think about the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Jesus says, pray like this then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His glory, not ours. His kingdom, not our kingdom. His name is holy. His name is sacred. It's the heart of pride that makes everything about us. When God's name is glorified, guess what? Creation will flourish. When we attempt to glorify our name, Creation is polluted. So who are you trying to make a great name for? You know, reflect in your hearts right now. What is the purpose for the things that you do? Look at your calendar. Look at your week. Why are you doing the things that you do? Or why in fear do you always play it safe? Looking to protect your name and not looking to spread God's name. Maybe... The Lord has been calling you to do something for years, and you keep quenching the Spirit. I quenched my call to ministry for years. I would always say later, later. I'm building my own kingdom right now, right? Building my own tower. I'll eventually get to your city, God, and your tower, but right now, 
for many of us, later never comes. What would my family think if I left a successful career or went into ministry? Or even crazier, like, what if I became a missionary? Someday I'll do that. When my kingdom is finished, we can start with yours, Lord. So people in the land of Shinar are attempting to build a city, build a tower for their name's sake. But they also have this fear. What was the fear? We see it in Luke. We see it in uh, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were motivated by the fear of being dispersed, the fear of being scattered over all the face of the earth. You see, they weren't a big fan of God's command in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They thought, you know what, if we could settle here, build this city, put up these protective walls, build a tower that ascends to the heavens, we could build our way up to heaven. It could give us that spiritual element that this city needs. But you know what, we're going to commune with God on our terms now. Because after all, you know what, we're a united people. We're gathered, strong in numbers, and we're a force to be reckoned with. They thought staying together was much, was a way better idea than God's crazy idea of having them scattered. I mean, after all, who knows what's out there? What we know, it's safe here. It's safe here. We can build a name here. This to me sounds like a much better plan. They were full of fear of the unknown. So let's build this city and let's build this tower. Ah, the tower. Now, most scholars would agree that when you're talking about a tower into heavens during this time, uh, you're talking about something called a ziggurat. Now, there's a picture of a ziggurat. Um, So a ziggurat was a temple tower, right? It was similar to a pyramid, and it was built in, like, successive stages with outdoor staircases. And these structures would go higher and higher, eventually leading to a shrine that sits at the top of the tower. Kind of looks like a multi-layered, like, wedding cake. So the idea was to either bring God down or we were trying to attain the level of God. We're building a stairway to heaven. So maybe a ziggurat is what Led Zeppelin was thinking when they wrote the song and they were sitting around reading Genesis 11, but I seriously doubt that. And there would be a shrine at the top of this ziggurat, right? The shrine would have a bed, maybe some food, in case God wanted to come and visit, you know? They were trying to, like, domesticate God. The tower would bring them access to God, the tower would bring them significance. You know what? We're going we're to build a legacy here, guys. We're going to gain immortality. For future generations, right, we're going to be remembered. It's sad because in all these plans to build the city, especially this tower, they never did ask God what he wanted. He's not mentioned in their planning process at all. More than likely, these people knew about God heard the stories about God, heard about the flood. They knew the history. But they were functioning like they were independent from God. They were making plans like God wouldn't have the ultimate say, and they had forgotten who God was, forgotten his promises and forgotten his commands. That is never a good place to be in. 
So in their decision-making grid, right, we all have these decision-making grids they had forgotten God. How often in our decision-making grid do we leave God out of our equation? We only look to ourselves, we look at the resources we can see, and we forget about God's grace. Some of us here this morning are in the midst of some huge decisions. Maybe it has to do with your family, your finances. Maybe it's school. Some of you graduating high school, college. It's like, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? So whatever area it may be, the question that I have for you is, do you still have joy and freedom in the midst of hard decisions? Or are you bound up with so much anxiety, all the what-if questions, believing that if you blow this decision, you're going to ruin your life? God's grace doesn't even factor in your equation at all. Because this decision right here, it all rides on you. The pressure, right? It can paralyze you. Well, let me tell you, a healthy dose of God's sovereignty can free you of that paralysis. While our, our decisions matter, not talking about a let, God, let go and let God approach, but the fact of the matter is that when we're in Christ, the promise is that he will work in all the decisions that we make to make us more like Christ. We all make good decisions and we all make not so good decisions. But there is so much joy and freedom knowing that God works in them both. Right? God loves you so much that he's not going to leave you to your own demise. He's not like standing there waiting for you to choose. And if you choose wrongly, he says, well, that's it. I'm out of here. No, we make the best decisions we have with the wisdom we have. We read, we pray, we get advice from smarter people than we, than we are, right? Wise people. You know, maturing in wisdom is a lifelong process. It's learning more and more about who God is, his promises, his commandments, and that's going to help shape your mind and conscience. And decisions you'll find get easier and easier. And the reality is that some decisions are easier than others. You know, one way isn't clearly, one way it's a moral decision, right? One way is clearly God adhering to God's commands and the other isn't. But let's be honest, most of our life and our decisions are in that gray area where one way isn't necessarily right and one way isn't necessarily wrong. There aren't really any moral issues at stake. But I encourage you, use the wisdom that you have at this point of your life and make a decision. And God will work in that decision. When you are in Christ, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He is committed to make you more like Jesus. He's not going to abandon the work that he has begun in you. So these people have put their name above God's name. They're seeking independence from God. And their decisions are reflecting their heart posture. So what does God do? Point two. God's sovereign response brings both judgment and mercy. See, verse 5 is the hinge verse here. We move from what's happening on earth, now we see what's happening in heaven. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Two things to note here. 
First, we see that the Lord comes down. Then we see the term children of man, which can be translated as the children of Adam. Moses wants to show humanity's link to Adam and his sin. So the Lord's coming down to see this tower. He's going to investigate. You know, when my kids were younger, we would go to South Carolina for vacation, and we would go to the beach, Pauly's Island, and we would play in the sand, and I'd have these little kids, miss those days, water, building little castles and mounds in the sand. You know, then they would run up the beach where I was sitting, and they would say, look what we've made. And where I was sitting, like I really couldn't, I couldn't see it, so I would get up, walk closer, and I would go up, okay, oh, look, there it is. And I would stoop down and say, oh, that's wonderful. How impressive. Then a wave would come and just like knock it all out. I mean, that's a little like what's going on right here. The tower got God's attention. So he came down to investigate. Because it was so small, he couldn't even see it from heaven. Now, realize that this is human language using to describe God to make a point. We all know that God sees everything at all times. God's not caught by surprise by their actions, nor is he powerless to stop them. The point here is that this situation has God's full attention. So he comes down, see what the children of man had built. The tower that man thought was so high and significant, the Lord had to come down and see. So small that the Lord couldn't even see it. John Piper calls this holy scorn. Now, I wasn't scorning my children at the beach that day, just to make that clear. My metaphor falls short there. But it's like God coming down and saying, oh, look, what a, what a mighty tower you have there. Stooping down, squinting his eyes. Oh, look, there it is. It's not impressive in God's eyes. You know, when it says the Lord comes down, it speaks to his intimate involvement with creation And it also shows that he's about to act. The Lord comes down in other parts of Scripture, and it speaks of his intimate involvement with his creation. A couple of examples. Genesis 18, 21. The Lord comes down to see the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Exodus 3, 8. The Lord comes down to rescue Israel from the power of Egypt. Exodus 19, 11. The Lord came down to Mount Zion to deliver to Moses the Ten Commandments. See, these people were trying to build up to meet God, but the reality is that the Lord needs to come down to meet us. The Lord actively sustains the universe. God is not an absentee landlord. He's not off doing his own thing. The God of the Bible is one that is intimately involved with his creation. He's a watchman, sees all we do. He's the one that sets the law, sets the standard. And he's the one that will address and deal with sin. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So we see in verse 6 that these people were truly becoming a united nation. But they were serving themselves in their unity. Unity as an end in itself is never a good thing. Exhibit Hitler and Germany. 
It is dependent on what you are united on. These people were uniting in evil. And when God says nothing is impossible with them, he's certainly not saying that they pose a legitimate threat to his sovereign purposes. Rather, this is God showing mercy to his creation. God knows that their unification and self-exalting pride is going to lead to unchecked evil and utter chaos. He knows that if they stay together in this current condition, things are only going to get worse. He is merciful with his judgment. He's not worried about a threat to himself. He's concerned for humanity. There's no threat to God. I mean, he just flooded the world. That is a display of power that can't be matched. So he takes action. He's actually protecting them with what he's about to do. God chooses to act. Verses 7 and 8. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. God, wanting to restrain evil, confused their language. And by doing so, God brings judgment but mercy at the same time. Judgment by stopping their plans and making their life more difficult. I mean, you're building this city and you're like, hey, Mike, pass the hammer. And all of a sudden, Mike looks at you and is like, he doesn't know what you're saying, right? I don't know how it happened. But this is mercy because the united power of evil men would lead us further and further away from God. God is acting supernaturally. In an instant, we have the multiplicity of languages. Now, this is, this is pretty crazy, right? Now, this sounds unbelievable to some of us. You may say, like, this sounds more like a work of fiction, something you'd see in Narnia or Lord of the Rings. But no, this is how it happened. We believe that this is the inerrant word of God, and all of it is true. These early chapters in Genesis are foundational to our worldview. We can't pick and choose what we believe. If we do that, we leave ourselves open to all kinds of error, so we don't do that. We can't treat the scriptures like ordering off of a menu a la carte. Right? I like that, not that so much. Oh, Jesus and that whole love thing, I'm in for that. Judgment, supernatural things, uh, not for me. Not to pick on Thomas Jefferson, but have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible. It's on display at the Smithsonian. Now, I was reading about this the other day. Um, now, Thomas Jefferson, I love Thomas Jefferson, American president, writer of the Declaration of Independence. But Jefferson was a deist. And a deist believes in the existence of a God on the evidence of reason and nature only. So a deist would reject any super, supernatural revelation. So what Jefferson did was he took all the things that didn't make sense to him out of the Bible. Things like miracles, gone. Supernatural events, gone. The virgin birth, nope. Any Old Testament prophecies that had to do with the foretelling of Jesus as the coming Messiah, gone. He removed all those things. And he just kept all the things he liked. And he formed the Jefferson Bible. Now, what Thomas Jefferson was doing was making a God out of his own likeness. He wanted a God that suited him. Let's not do that. <laughs> Let's not edit and make our own 
Bible. This is all true, whether it suits us or not. Making a God in our own likeness, no. But here is something also that I want you to see in verse 8. The thing that these people feared catches up with them at the end. They built a city not to be scattered. And guess what? In the end, they're scattered. So this city, this tower they thought would bring them security, significance, is an epic failure because the thing that they feared happened to them anyway. It reminds me of the Titanic. You know, the builders of the Titanic set out to construct the unsinkable ship. They wanted a name of greatness in the shipbuilding industry. But in the end, what is the Titanic known for? Sinking. An epic failure. Ask Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Rose just, Rose just let him drown, right? Nope, no room for you up here. But anyway, moving on. So the people building this city and this tower were confused by God, scattered, abandoned the project. The very thing that motivated them to start the project so they wouldn't be scattered failed. And they were scattered anyway. When we trust on anything besides God, it's going to fail us. And the thing that we feared will become a reality. The thing we fear the most ultimately catches up with us if we leave God out of the equation. That's the judgment. At the same time, please don't overlook the mercy in this. He didn't wipe them out completely. He made a covenant with Noah. God shows mercy. He restrains their evil by separating them. Just like a mom with young kids, right? You, you, separate, you separate them. Time out for you. You over here, right? They have a much better chance of returning to God if separated rather than if they were united. The unity of evil was so strong. So God confused them. Now, God has been known to confuse a few lives here and there to get people's attention to return to them, to return to him. He spreads evil out as a means of grace to humanity. Verse 9 closes this account. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Babel. So the original word translated about 236 times in the Old Testament, only a handful of times as Babel. The rest of the time translated as Babylon. In the Babylonian language, their, ne- their name means gateway to God. But in Hebrew, it's a word that means confusion. These people began with a mission to build a tower with a gateway to God. And it ends with confusion and disbursement. So this is the origin story of the city of Babylon, a city that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. This isn't some story about some rinky-dink city that came and went. This is the beginning of the Babylonian empire. Worship team, you can come up. Babylon, who would destroy Jerusalem and the temple... Babylon would become a symbol of the enemy of God and his people. Babylon that will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the last days, right before the coming of the new heavens 
and the new earth. The kingdom of Babylon will have its ultimate end. The kingdom of God runs throughout all eternity. And who is the king of this everlasting kingdom? Jesus Christ, the theological center of the Bible. Everything points to him and is about him. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings, King Jesus, who is the same Jesus who came down as a servant, setting aside all that was rightfully his in heaven, came down as a servant, to rescue all who would have faith in him, dying for our sins, giving us his righteousness, and ushering us into his kingdom. You see, he changes our citizenship from Babylon to his kingdom. And the only way that we enter this everlasting kingdom and everlasting city is through Jesus. Nothing we do, no tower will ever lead us into God's presence. No accomplishment, no works can lead you into a right relationship with God. Only Jesus. You know, nearly 3,000 years later, after the story in Genesis 11, we see the, great, the day of the great reversal of Babel in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascends to heaven, sends the Spirit down upon his people, the Spirit comes down. We see God coming down, reversing what God happened, what happened at Babel. All nations hearing the gospel in their own language, instead of confusion, there's understanding. One unifying message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the name that is above any other name. Jesus bringing the people of every tribe, nation, together again by his grace. No longer separated and scattered, but safe and secure in God's kingdom. By grace, he ushered us out of the Babylonian kingdom and into his. Praise King Jesus. Amen.